I want to welcome you and thank you for uh, visiting. If you're visiting here this morning with us, we are just beginning our journey through uh, 1 Timothy. We'll be there probably for the next six to seven months. We are committed to working through the scriptures line by line, kind of precept by precept, uh, word by word oftentimes, um, so that we might get the whole counsel of God's word. And uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 3 through 7 is where we're going to focus today. The title of the message is Remain On, 1 Timothy 1, 3 through 7. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia, remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, which give rise to mere speculation rather than furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men straying from these things have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to become teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident assertions. Let's pray. Father, as we come before you today, I I pray, uh, Lord, that each and every one of us would uh, come with a humble heart, asking, Lord, for your spirit to change us, that we would ever be a new people day by day, Lord, leaving different than we came in. Lord, we know it takes your spirit to do that. I pray that you would convict us of sin left unconfessed, as we consider and ponder and work our way through your word, Lord, that we uh, might be in right standing with you, that we might have assurance uh, of our salvation as we walk in closeness with you. Lord, I pray that you would grant those uh, repentance today who do not know you, that they might know you for the first time, Lord, and experience what it means to have your spirit living within them. Lord, we'll give you all the glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. There was a pastor who met a man in the community who was known for having questionable business ethics, but claimed to be a Christian. Upon asking the man if he was a faithful member of a church, the man nonchalantly responded, no. The dying thief upon the cross did not ever join the church, and he went on to be in heaven. The pastor, being taken aback a little, responded by asking the man another question. Surely, you faithfully support the cause of missions, right? Well, the man answered while casually shaking his head as if the pastor had lost his mind. Would I give my money? No way. The dying thief on the cross never contributed to missions, and he went on to be in heaven. To which the pastor quickly responded, yes, but he was a dying thief, and You should not be a living one. Unfortunately, this story of church member detachment is far too common, especially in American churches. There is mass confusion around the topic of what a church is, let alone what a person who attends a church should expect, and furthermore, what is expected from them. This confusion has and continues to lead people into dark holes of confusion and ineffectiveness in their Christian walk. Fidelity, constancy, devotion, dedication, loyalty, 
longevity, endurance, and permanency are all words that can be used synonymously to describe a person who has proven character in the church, what the Bible calls a faithful person, one that you can trust. In the second epistle written to Timothy, the Apostle Paul wrote to his dear son in the faith, giving him a roadmap for the church's future leadership, saying this in 2 Peter 2, 1 and 2. You, therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. The things which you have heard from me, that is the right doctrine, in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these, look here, to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Friends, last week I mentioned Timothy's biblical biography, which proves him to be nothing less than a faithful servant of Jesus Christ. He was Paul's disciple, friend, co-worker, and as verse 2 says, he was Paul's true child in the faith. By the time this letter had been written, he had faithfully served and had been with Paul about 15 years. The apostle had asked him to stay at the Berean church, and later he joined Paul on mission in Athens. His faithful service is observed in Corinth. He took the gospel to the region of Macedonia, and he accompanied Paul back to Jerusalem, where Paul would end up in prison at Caesarea Marantima. And he is recorded as being with Paul during the writing of seven of the Pauline epistles. It is likely that Timothy may have been a little timid, as we would be if we were being persecuted for our faith. As we see that Timothy's spiritual father, Paul, would remind him that God had not given him a spirit of fear, but of love and power and discipline. It is clear that some in the church were questioning Timothy's authority to lead, as Paul reminded him to let no one look down on you for your youthfulness. Additionally, Timothy may have been a little bit frail, as we learn later that Paul would encourage him to change his diet, his daily diet of water, uh, because of his frequent ailments. The faithful servant Timothy is now being commanded to settle in and remain on in Ephesus. No easy task, mind you. And he would have his hands full as the Apostle Paul, if you'll remember, had warned the Ephesian elders in Acts chapter 20 that wolves from the outside would come into the church and that from uh, some among them, that is the Ephesian elders, would arise speaking perverse things and draw away the disciples after him. What an introduction, right? (laughs) Here he is in Ephesus, this wild city. uh, Paul is leaving for Macedonia, and he already knows, he's quite certain, right? Paul has prophesied that wolves are going to come in and try and destroy your church, and guess what? You can't even trust those men who you called elders. There are going to be some who rise up among the Ephesian elders to draw disciples away. Beloved Timothy is pastoring this Ephesian church, and like him, 2,000 years later, we are constantly faced with wolves from the outside, not sparing the flock, as Luke would write in Acts, and false doctrines from the inside trying to divide the church. Paul tells Timothy that the outcome of the administration of God, which is by faith alone, will always produce a pure heart, a good conscience, 
and a sincere faith. The Spirit of God through Paul is giving instructions for church. And at its core, we, like Timothy, must be faithful. We must remain on to take up the mantle of furthering the doctrine of salvation by grace alone, through faith alone. Take a look there in your text. In verse 3, Paul starts with, I urged you. I urged you. The verb urged is kaleo. It is the word uh, kaleo, put together, um, uh, to call is what that means, put together with this, and is a compound word, put together with para, beside. And it is, in its most wooden sense, is to call alongside. Depending on context, it can be translated softly as comfort, and as edgy or as strong as we see it here to urge or to exhort. It was somewhat of a military command uh, that I urge you, I exhort you, I command you, Timothy, is what is being said. And he's being asked to be reminded, I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia. And, and we can take away from this, can we not, saints, that, that, that the Apostle Paul, as he's leaving, he's moving on to Macedonia to preach the gospel and teach the gospel uh, somewhat out of the pressure that is happening in Acts chapter 19 and all of the disruption, which we'll talk about here in a little bit, that was going on there. Walking out of Ephesus, Paul is leaving, and he is urging, he is commanding, he is, he is uh, demanding that Timothy would remain on in Ephesus. So Paul is writing both to remind Timothy of his command to pastor the church and to inform others reading this letter that Timothy had the authority to do so. Timothy was to remain on at Ephesus. Ephesus was an ancient city and it had reached its heights of influence in the first and second centuries of Christianity. Located now in what we know to be modern Turkey and, uh, and then ancient Asia Minor, Ephesus was a political, religious, and commercial center. It is located on the middle of three major river valleys which empty into the Mediterranean, Mediterranean. at the time uh, it included a seaport. What you'll learn now, you can go and you can see some of the remains of Ephesus, but it's about six miles inland because of all the silt and stuff that has flowed down and dumped into the Mediterranean Sea. It's, it's actually built its way back, so to say, uh, and it's no longer on that sea or seaport. But as you can imagine, uh, it was an important city. At, at Paul and Timothy's time, it was estimated to be the fourth largest city in the world with a population of about 250,000. That's about four times the size of Cheyenne. Acts 19 records that Paul came to Ephesus and preached in the Jewish synagogues for about three months until the preaching created uh, some disunity in the synagogues. And Paul, wanting to avoid that proverb that says that a man who creates discord amongst the brethren, the Lord hates, he would then move out. Those who uh, had believed upon Paul uh, would follow him out. And so for three months, he preached in uh, and created uh, great disunity. He then took the new disciples and reasoned daily, uh, Acts 19 says, at a school of Tyrannus. He did that for about two years. 
In verse 11 of chapter 19, we find that while Paul was in Ephesus, God was performing extraordinary miracles by the hand of Paul. So extraordinary that pieces of clothing that had been on Paul were being taken to the sick and the demon-possessed for healing. At that time, false Jewish teachers arose attempting to cast out demons by the Jesus whom Paul preaches, only later to be beaten naked by a demon-possessed man. Paul's miracles and the fear of demon possession had the city buzzing, and verse 17 says this, this became known to all, that is the whole city, 250,000 people. Both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus and fear fell upon them all and that the name of the Lord was being magnified. I always like to pause and I try to point this out and we live in a day and age where there's a lot of heresy in the church and that uh, uh, in that there are those who are teaching that signs, wonders, and miracles should just be going on. They should be happening all the time. We Literally in California, there's a school uh, that you can go to uh, apparently to, to learn how to do signs, wonders, and miracles. And, and oddly, uh, I, I will say that uh, it has shut, been shut down during COVID because they don't want anybody to get sick. Glad you got that. <laughs> I'm sorry. I could really go <laughs> the wrong direction here. What I want to say to you is this, that signs, wonders, and miracles are being done by Paul as he's taking the gospel to cities four times the size of Cheyenne. And those signs, wonders, and miracles are authenticating the authority that Jesus Christ had given him on the road to Damascus to share the gospel. They were authenticating that Paul was the teacher that they should be listening to. Paul's preaching of the gospel of Ephesus was so influential that the commerce of crafting and selling idols was threatened and spurred on a riot, if you'll remember, in Acts 19. That eventually ended with Paul leaving the city for the region of Macedonia. The church at Ephesus would go on to receive one of the most beautifully crafted epistles on soteriology and practice in the New Testament, the letter we call the Ephesians. Ephesus would go on to receive its first prominent pastor, Timothy. So the situation is that Timothy, in Paul's absence, is to have an apostolic authority to remain on in Ephesus. And why? Look, so that, there in your text, so that you may instruct, the Greek word is para, along, in angelo, to announce. This is the verb from the form, or the form and the noun form of it is angelos, or what we would transliterate angel, who we know to be a messenger. So here we see another compound word, right? Along, uh, along to announce. He is, uh, he is to stay there. He is to remain so that he may instruct, he may announce like a messenger sent from the Lord, like an angel sent from the Lord, Timothy was to be the messenger, the one with authority to instruct. And to instruct who? Certain men not to teach strange doctrines. In this season of the church's development, Paul and Timothy would travel from town to town. And if the town had at least 10 Jewish men, certainly Ephesus was one of them, 
they could institute a synagogue. Paul, being a Pharisee, would be allowed to get into that synagogue. He would go into that, uh, those cities, those synagogues, plural, in, in Ephesus's case, and he would begin to teach. Of course, he would begin to teach from the scriptures that Jesus Christ was supposed to come, die uh, a horrible death, and be raised three days again. Some would believe, others would be interested, but nonetheless, it would cause that division inside the synagogue. Ultimately, Paul would leave. They would begin to plant a church. In a church plant or revitalization like ours, one of the most critical things that has to happen, and this church has gone through it at this point, at least for one person, is that is you must have a biblically qualified elder. A church is not a church until God gives it a qualified, a biblically qualified elder. No doubt in Ephesus, after Paul's departure, there would be leaders who would jockey for the leadership vacuum that the apostle would leave. The problem was they did not have the 15 years of doctrinal instruction that Timothy had. Paul trusted Timothy's doctrine, and therefore Timothy was to lead the church at Ephesus. He was to remain on. Like Timothy, who had received instructions to remain on to elder the church at Ephesus, Paul charged another young man who was one of his ministry partners by the name of Titus. He charged that young man with the same commands for the churches in Crete, saying this in Titus chapter 1, verse 5. For this reason, I, that's the Apostle Paul there, left you, that's Titus, in Crete, that you would set in order what remains and appoint elders in every city as I directed you. Verses 6 through 9 give the qualifications of those elders. They're very much uh, in parallel with 1 Timothy 3 that we'll look at here in the next month or so. And then... Paul does this. He tells Titus why he must appoint these kind of leaders. Verse 10 of Titus 1. For there are, look here, many rebellious men, empty talkers and deceivers, especially those of the circumcision. What is Paul saying? There are many rebellious men, all kinds of different ones, but especially those of Jewish nature, right? those of the circumcision, verse 11, who must be silenced because they are upsetting whole families, teaching things they should not teach. Sounds familiar, right? Timothy is commanded, certain men are not to be teaching strange doctrines in the church. And Titus is told to silence these men for teaching things they should not teach. Love of the role of an elder, the role of the elders of the church is certainly to keep a strong and close eye on the doctrine of the church. I would expect any one of you, or, and especially the elders, to be carefully listening to the things that I teach. I would expect that if I were to say something wrong, whether it was out of ignorance or that I had planned it, that you would gently, rightly come to me and say, Pastor, help me understand. I, I, I think I heard you to say this. Is that right? And can we talk about that? Listen, that's not an affront to me. We want to move ahead. I want to teach what God said, not what I think, not what some professor parroted. 
And we want to move forward and we want to hold on to the doctrines of the faith. Amen? So Timothy and Titus, they are, uh, ex- they are commanded. To Timothy, to stay in one church and become that elder, to be that one who looks over that doctrine. Titus is commanded to go through all of Crete, establishing elders, notice in the plural, in each city. A church is not a church until its leaders meet the qualifications of the elders. Beloved Timothy must paraangalo, instruct, he must charge or command, as the NIV puts it, certain men not to teach strange doctrines. Commentators note that in this case, these certain men in the church at Ephesus may very well have been, uh, already have been elders. Paul had prophesied, as I have already mentioned in Acts 20, uh, and uh, we um, have already read that some of them uh, could have been those who are going astray. Those who are leading people astray within the church. Whether they were the elders or not, that's these certain men, it does not matter. These men were teaching strange doctrines, being led astray by myths and endless genealogies. It is about these same types of men, the Apostle Paul writing to Titus said this in chapter 3, verses 9 through 11. But avoid foolish controversies and genealogies and strife. Sounds very familiar, right? And disputes about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Here we go. Reject a factious man after a first and second warring knowing that such a man is perverted and is sinning, being self-condemned. It was these certain men that Timothy was to instruct, to paraangelo, right? Not to teach strange doctrines, nor pay attention, look in verse 4, to myths and endless genealogies which give rise to mere speculation. The Greek word for speculation can be uh, very literally translated as seeking out or merely seeking. Because this is the only place that we see it in the New Testament, now catch some of my humor here, there is some speculation on how to use the word. Nevertheless, you didn't catch it. There's speculation about the word speculation. Come on, I'm just trying to keep you awake. Some translate it as aimless arguing. Or, quote, a subject of subtle inquiry and dispute, end quote. And the one that I like from, I believe, probably the most faithful uh, lexicon uh, that is available today um, from the BDAG is useless speculation. Some years ago, I sat with my pastor, Pastor Martin from Laramie, while he counseled a man who was upset with him Uh, because Pastor Martin did not believe in unicorns. Some of you know where I'm going with this, and I do not mean to make fun of it, but I mean to use it as an example. This certain man believed that the King James Version was the only English translation that was faithful to the Old Testament Hebrew and New Testament Greek translation. And if it said that there were unicorns, by golly, there were unicorns. Pastor Martin patiently told him about 
the difficulties in translating, especially things in Hebrew uh, uh, of nature of animals. And all throughout the Old Testament, there are references in some translations, and you can just see the translators wrestling. They don't know what the word is, beloved. We've got to be okay with that. It's an extremely ancient language. There's no context. There wasn't enough context to translate the word right. And for whatever reason, the King James uh, um, court of, of men who were translating decided on unicorn. I, I'm not certain exactly why. Kind of makes me giggle. I'm sorry. Right? But in other places, in Deuteronomy, sometimes you translate a word badger. In other places, the same word in the same spot. Other translators translate it porpoise. They're just trying to figure out what this animal is. There's no other context. The, the language is so ancient, it's so old, that you just kind of have to look at the context and decide we're going to stick in unicorn. Pastor Martin went on to explain that we just accept that there are very, very few words that are lost in translation. and We must allow the context to help us to translate those words. Well, as you might expect, that was not sufficient. And the man wanted to meander along in fruitless discussions. He was upset at the pastor, essentially saying, if you don't believe there's unicorns, you don't believe the Bible. Toward the end of the discussion, and I will never forget it, Pastor, in his gentle way, asked the man, when was the last time you shared your faith with someone? And from my perspective, as I observed and discerned the body language of the two, I could tell that the man sensed that he had been caught arguing about unprofitable and worthless controversies rather than furthering the stewardship of God, which is by faith. Unwilling to admit his error, he, he got bound up and didn't know what to say. He picked up his stuff and he left the meeting and later he left the church. Beloved, sadly, the man had spent hundreds of hours trying to prove the existence of unicorns, but was silenced by the reality that he had never shared his faith. Beloved, like Paul, who had to excommunicate Hymenaeus and Alexander in verse, one, uh, verse 20 of chapter 1 for shipwrecking their faith, Timothy needed to stop these men's teaching, which was giving rise to aimless arguing or useless speculation, rather than, what is the opposite of it? Furthering the administration of God, which is by faith. The better manuscripts have the Greek word oikonomion, Translated administration rather than edification or edifying. Administration or stewardship, as the ESV translates the word, is one of the Apostle Paul's favorite words, and he uses it in Ephesians 3, verses 1 and 2, like this. For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the oikonomion, there it is, the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you. These people in Ephesus, these men, potentially elders that are rising up and leading people astray, 
uh, are leading people into useless discussions, discussions about words and arguments about uh, Jewish history and maybe what the Talmud would have been, some of the oral tradition of Judaism and what Timothy is being commanded here to do as the first pastor of the Ephesian church is to simply steward the gospel of Jesus Christ. Steward that gospel. You, Timothy, rather than do that, steward, administrate, teach that salvation comes by grace alone, through faith alone, and do not move. The false teachers in the Ephesian church were teaching these strange doctrines, leading, to, leading people to useless speculation rather than furthering the good news of God's salvation through faith. Paul's deep concern for the leadership of the church was that it would continue the message of a holy, just, and merciful God who would both justly punish the sinner for their sin and would mercifully forgive the sinner that would repent and put their faith in Christ Jesus. Friends, if you're here this morning and you've been trying to figure out where you're at with the Lord, maybe there was a time in your life where you thought you were on fire, you were saved, and maybe now you're discouraged, maybe you're uh, frustrated, maybe you're not, maybe you're uncertain that you're a believer. I just want to remind you that when the little children, I love in Luke because it says both the infants were brought to Jesus and the little children. And the disciples, if you'll remember, they were kind of upset. They didn't want to be bothered by all these little kids and crying babies. And Jesus rebukes them, certainly in love, and says, such as these. Beloved, the message of the gospel is simple. You've put your faith in Christ. I want you to be reminded that God, uh, although we are a people who are easily distracted and we easily get off track and we easily get caught up in sin and we easily return, that God is not confused about where you're at and he is faithful. We may be unfaithful. We certainly are unfaithful. If you've put your faith in Christ, be reminded today. That's all it is. This is what... This is what the apostle, right, is telling Timothy, don't get drug into goofy stuff about unicorns. Administer, steward the faith, the gospel of Jesus Christ. Teach that because it frees people up. It brings people from death to life. The Bible is so clear. If you've not put your faith in Christ and you're wondering, where do I stand? What should I do? It is so simple. Cry out to God. Let him know you agree with him. You are a sinner and you need help. You need to be saved. God is merciful. Believe that Jesus Christ took the punishment you deserve and, and got stuck up on the cross on your behalf and believe that, uh, that his rising from the dead on the third day is the proof that you can put all your hope in that. The curse, the result of sin was that we would eventually die. And how many of you know that this very second, now this one, now this one, now this one, is the next second you are closer to dying? The curse of sin is death. When Christ came back, he had to raise from the dead to prove that Adam's sin no longer held him in the grave. If you will believe, 
you'll just agree with God that you're a sinner. You'll agree that Christ came to save you from that sin and that God raised him on the third day. Listen, it's that simple. God says he'll give you the spirit, his own spirit to live inside of you and you will be like a born again person, amen? That's the administration of God. It is what Timothy is being asked to look over. To just keep it simple, Timothy. Beloved, the church is to be stewarding, taking care of or administrating the furthering of the gospel, not sitting around navel-gazing about doctrines and ministry philosophies leading to speculation. What we see is that when the gospel is furthered, when a church is focused on the furthering of the gospel and every one of you is, is focused on knowing it, learning it, living it in front of others, offering the gospel, as Romans 1.16 says, that it is that it, that is the gospel, is the power of God unto salvation. If every one of you is going to work with the mindset or going to the store with the mindset that it is that power, the simplicity of the gospel that is going to change a life, we won't have to worry about whether or not we have systemic racism in our country. Because God died for all. And it won't matter. You'll be a new person. You'll love the black man, the white man, the orange girl, the green girl. I don't know, is there such a thing? Get my point. What we see is that a church that is focused on the gospel and the furthering of the gospel doesn't get hung up in weird controversies over words focus is, how do I reach these people who are dying and go to hell? We're too busy discipling somebody, teaching somebody that the Old Testament can be broken down into 5-12-5-5-12. Simple breaking, breaking up points of our Old Testament that we can begin to learn and to, to teach them how, how the Word of God works, how it promises from, every, from, from Genesis chapter 3 all the way to the death of Christ on the cross, that, that God had a plan for humanity to fix the sin. We'd be busy uh, talking about that, teaching people, rather than worrying about and speculating about every little thing. Paul tells Timothy, verse 5, there, that the goal of our instruction, what is that instruction? The gospel. The goal of the gospel is love. Many of you are aware of and, and um, the words that are used throughout the New Testament for love, one of which it speaks more of brotherly type of love is phileo. And we have come to learn, of course, that uh, love, as Paul loves to use it and many of the other New Testament writers, is this word agape. It is not a new word to the New Testament. It is actually quite common word in the Greek Old Testament, the Septuagint. And it is usually placed in place of what we would see as God's loving kindness, his steadfastness, his patience with Israel as they fell into sin. And he would be patient and patient and patient. And if they would just, if they would just repent, if they would just repent, he would not judge them, right? He would go on for three, four hundred years in cycles. God begging them through the prophets, in his loving kindness. The idea is here that the goal of our instruction is to love like that. 
the Holy Spirit inspired New Testament writers, especially Paul, to add to the depth of agape's definition. Most noticeably, and you're familiar with it, is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. Here's the definition of New Testament agape. Love is patient. Love is kind and is not jealous. Love does not brag and is not arrogant. Love, I'm going to add it in here, does not act becomingly. Love does not seek its own. Love is not provoked. Love does not take into account a wrong suffered. Love does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but love rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things. Love believes all things. Love hopes all things. Love endures all things. Love never fails. The goal of the gospel is that God's people would administrate love. It would be the fruit of a regenerated life. The apostle says that the goal, the outcome of correct instruction will not be confused and useless speculation, but rather love welling up from three sources, from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. Beloved, we are to, if we are born again, the Spirit of God is going to help us to love from a pure heart. This gets rid of this idea that we have to serve, we must serve, we're compelled to serve, we have to do something for the church, we have to do something for our people because God demands it of us. This idea that we love, that we agape, the way we just read in in 1 Corinthians 13 is that we would do it from a pure heart. We would desire to do those things. And the only way that's going to happen, beloved, is if you're born again, if the Spirit of God lives in your life. It is the Spirit himself who purifies our hearts. We're to love from a good conscience. It should be the goal of every Christian to have a good conscience. Know this, beloved, that God gave us a conscience. We don't talk about that a lot in today's world because we're so enamored with the idea that everybody has their own right to live however they want, but God certainly in, his, in the moral essence of who he made humanity gave us a conscience to know the difference between right and wrong. We can sear that conscience. We're going to read that not too far from now in 1 Timothy. We can sear it. How do we do that? We educate ourselves out of it. Oh, I know I shouldn't steal that candy from the candy jar, right, Matthew? I shouldn't do that again. Oh, but I know Dad told me not to, right? And that's silly, but the reality is, is that that is sin, right? And the more we break that barrier of the conscience that exists in our lives, the one that God says don't do it, and we feel that weird inner thing like, "Ah, I shouldn't do that, the more we do that, uh, uh, we callous our hearts. Our hearts become impure. We cannot feel the same things that we always feel. And pretty soon, what was difficult to dip my handy, hand in to steal that cookie becomes very normal. And such is sin. The goal of the Christian should have a good conscience. And the third thing, a love that we should love from a sincere 
faith. Man, we could go on about that. In a culture of Christianity, much like the Western world is, maybe less so now than 100 years ago, certainly, what does it mean to have a sincere faith? One that is visible. One that when people look at you, they see a sincere follower of Jesus Christ. Not trying to prove something. Not trying to trick somebody into something. Recently listened to an outreach that a church had done and, and they had a whole bunch of people show up for a Halloween thing and about twelve or 1,300 people in a fairly small town because they were going to have a giant pumpkin shooting thing and I listened to the young man. He went on and on and on and and uh, and I'm not certain every every detail of it, but what stuck out to me, and I was a little brokenhearted, was was this was all in an effort to get people to come through the doors of the uh, of the church the the next Sunday, and then the big exciting thing was uh, if you'll come back to church on Sunday, we're going to give away a 70 inch uh, TV, and and he went on and on. Not one time was there a mention of the gospel. I'm fine. Shoot pumpkins. Gather a crowd. Give away stuff. I, I don't care as long as the gospel's being preached. It doesn't seem to be the excitement. A sincere faith. We know people like this in our lives, don't we? People, when they come to the end of their life, maybe we think that they didn't have a big effect on, on cultures and time, and, but we look at that and we think, man, I hope I can be a godly man, or, and I hope I can be a godly woman like that. I hope when somebody reads about me in the newspaper at the end of my life that somewhere in there it says, Carl was a godly man. That's all I care. A sincere faith should be the fruit of genuine Christianity. The opposite of genuine fruit bearing Christians are found in verses 6 and 7 there before you where Paul says, for some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or the matters about which they make confident. Paul certainly knew these men. He certainly knew that these men would arise, and he certainly understood that false teachers don't gather people because they aren't confident about their leading people in the wrong direction. Beloved, it is becoming of us. We must know the scriptures. We must listen careful, uh, carefully to those who are teaching us. We must know what God's word says. If you do not know what God's word says, when that confident person who has a charismatic personality comes along and they tell you all about this giant outreach they had and how many people showed up, you're not going to pick up the fact that the gospel was not preached. Yesterday, had the privilege to sit with a dear brother and get to know um, him and he, I, better. We shared our testimonies and we reminisced about the times when we were first saved, remembering how glorious those days were. Do you guys remember those days? When all seemed right in our Christian experiences. I don't know about you, but when I was first saved, I just figured, and I still think this, and I wrap it up to a little bit, right, to ignorance, <laughs> that the church was perfect, 
right? Everybody loved each other. There was never a fight. Nothing was going on. As far as my wife and I were concerned, I mean, if the doors were open to the church, we were in the doors, right? We were smiling. We were singing loud and all these things, right? And, and I just thought, looking back, I even still to this day, I think it, it had to have been the perfect church. <laughs> there were no troubles, well, if you're anything like me, those days of glory turn into days of trial. Discussion of different doctrines and ministry philosophies sometimes turn right into arguments and divisions within the church. Feelings of joy are sometimes replaced with feelings of disgust, depression, or often uh, uh, we have a desire to even stay away from the church. I've certainly suffered from that in the past. My new friend and I talked about how we would love to experience those glory days again. But in reality, if we had known, right, what was going on behind the scenes, the dirty laundry would have been in the... Beloved, the fact of the matter is most of the New Testament epistles are dedicated to the non-glorious reality of false teachers invading the church and major problems in the church. But most of the time... Both. Think about it for just a second with me. The Corinthian church had problems of incest. Think about it, right? Paul's writing about this whole situation in the church, incest. They were having unruly church services that weren't edifying the saints. They were getting together and having drunken potlucks rather than celebrating the Lord's table. Think of that. That's 1 Corinthians. The Galatian church had problems with false teachers attempting to turn the good news of the faith alone that saves us into the works for salvation. The Ephesian church, as we can see right here, uh, is already in danger of doing the same thing. Likely the reason Timothy is getting written this letter. These teachers of the law want to come in and tell you you can't be saved by faith. You've got to work your way to heaven. The main leader of the Gentile church, that is Paul, spent four years of his ministry that we're aware of in prison. Finding occasion to write four epistles that now sit in your laps. The Colossian church was in danger of asceticism, the teaching that abstaining from certain foods would help you enter into heaven. The Thessalonian church was being upset by letters from false teachers telling them that they had missed the rapture. And they were wandering around thinking, well, why go to work if the rapture's coming? And Paul has to rebuke him, right? He says, listen, man, if you don't work, you don't eat. Peter writes his general epistle. What is he warning? False teachers, false teachers, false teachers. Jude writes his epistle. False teachers are here. They're here. They're they're coming. You must hold on. You must battle for it. You must wrestle for the faith that was once for all handed down to the saints. Beloved, as much as I would love to go back to those years of glory in the church, the reality is that has never been the case. Where God's word is being taught, the devil will be right there trying to tear it up. The devil is ever at work. While we are here in Christ's church, we must fight for the stewardship of God, which is by faith. Beloved Timothy is pastoring 
this Ephesian church, and like him 2,000 years later, we are constantly faced with wolves from the outside, not sparing the flock, and false doctrines from the inside, which will always, always rise up. Unlike the man at the beginning of the sermon who used the excuse of going to heaven with no work involved, we must, like Timothy, remain on. We must become faithful. We must fight the good fight for right doctrine, which will always lead right action in our lives. The only way that your children and their children and their children, if the Lord tarries, is going to be if we will commit to teaching what God said. We will take ourselves out of it. We will, we will be great students of the word. We will, we will uh, carefully listen to the teachers that God has put in our lives. We will parse through the things that they say. We will engage our minds. We will, we will, we will uh, learn. We will listen. We will allow the word of God to reform who we are that we might pass it to the next generation, that we might hold on to the gold, which is the salvation of man through faith in Christ Jesus. Amen? The Spirit of God through Paul is giving instructions for church, and at its core, we, like Timothy, must remain on to take up the mantle of furthering the doctrine of salvation by grace through faith alone. Let's pray. Father, thank you for today. I thank you for your word. Lord, I do pray for our church. I pray for myself, the elders, future elders, Lord, that you would help us to stay consistently informed by your word. Help us, Lord, to uh, know your word. Not that we would just know it, God, but that we would bear the fruit of loving from a pure heart and a good conscience and sincere faith. Help us, Lord, to reach our neighbors, to reach those who we work with. For the gospel, Lord, we understand is the power, your power, for men to be saved. Give us the boldness. Help us to learn how to share it, Lord. I pray for those in here who do not know you, who have not put their faith in you, Lord, that this would be their day, that they would not move not take another breath, Lord, without your spirit guiding them and living in them. Lord, we know you do this. We know that you grant repentance. Help us in these things, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.